0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 590 VOCM, which is 8626. Well, even since I arrived, it worked much darker out there in VOCM Valley. Bit of RDF sucked in here. I think there's a bit of snow in other parts of the province, so watch your bobber if you're out and about today. Man, the Growlers are super hot to open up the season this year. Still haven't lost in regulation. Beat Maine, the Mariners, last night at Mary Brown Center, 5-0. Luke Cavlin broke. He had uh, 38 saves. His first professional shutout. Way to go, Luke. Some other notes from last night. Uh, Zach O'Brien, his 100th career ECHL goal. You know, every now and then I'm just i amazed. When I watch O'Brien play, I'm thinking, how is this guy not good enough to be playing in the American League? How is this guy not good enough to be playing in the National Hockey League? He's just an incredible player. So he scored his 100th goal. Congratulations to Zach and Todd Skirving. Not only is Todd a real member of the community, he's having a couple of pretty good seasons back-to-back, and this week he's the Player of the Week in the ECHL. So congratulations to the lads. That's pretty big stuff. All right. Uh, This is an interesting one. One of my favorite Blue Jays, I'm sure you're really curious, one of my favorite Blue Jays of all time, George Bell. It was today in 1987 that George Bell was the first Blue Jay to win the American League MVP award, so way to go to George Bell, I really love that guy. And this is an important one. It was today in 1869 that the Suez Canal opened for the very first time. Of course, linking the Mediterranean to the Red Seas. Some numbers to consider regarding the importance of that shortcut that is the Suez Canal. About 12% of global trade and 30% of global container traffic traverse the Suez. That's, one, that's over $1 trillion, American dollars, over a trillion American dollars per year. On the average, about 50 to 55 ships make their way through the canal every single day, carrying about $4 billion worth of goods. So when we talk about global supply chains, whenever a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal, it creates a pretty big problem. A trillion American dollars worth of goods through the Suez Canal each year. Unbelievable. Also, today in history, and this is today in November 17th, 1997, first oil at Hibernia. And of course, it was a long time coming, a long arduous trail. The oil, the field was first discovered in 1979, more than 300 kilometers from St. John's. But through the efforts of people like John Crosby, who really drove a hard bargain there, and is probably one of the key architects in seeing oil produced at Hibernia. The company that manages the oil field, uh, what's it called here specifically? The Hibernia Management and Development Company. I I always just call them HMDC. So there's six companies that manage the project. Of course, ExxonMobil is the operator. They say that they've paid the provincial and federal governments in the first nine months of this year $1 billion. We understand the importance that the oil industry has been to the province. What the future looks like remains to be seen. So when Hibernia was first producing oil uh, back in 1997, now of course there's four producing fields offshore, maybe a fifth in the offing, it might take a couple of years before Ecuador makes a final business decision sanction regarding Bay du Nord, Nord, but here we go, 25 years of oil production here in the province. For the longest time it looked like it wasn't going to happen at all, but of course there's a couple of people that have been uh, out at Hibernia working there every day since November the 17th, well not every day, they've been there for the entirety of the 25 years. Here's some of the other key ingredients to the Hibernia's success. When it was first discovered, they thought they might have about 20 years worth of life, maybe about 500 million barrels of oil. Here we are 25 years later, they produced over 1.2 billion barrels of oil, and they think there's enough out there to keep going for another two decades. So anyway, 25 years of oil, you want to take it on from any angle, you know what to do. On that front, the price of fuels are down across the board, still extraordinarily expensive so gasoline down four and a half cents diesel down almost five cents furnace oil down about five and a half cents stove oil down about 2.3 cents uh propane little small decrease less than a penny so we have been told now that inflation held steady at 6.9 percent last month the prices of food have come down a little tiny bit in We all know that inflation at 6.9% is nothing near what the food price inflation is, about 11.5%. Apparently now it's about 11 or 10.9%, so wow, big savings to be felt there. But every little tiny bit that we've saved last month at the grocery store has been offset by the increases in fuels. So no relief to speak of at all. All right, got to get to this one. You know, when we look at the issues plaguing the Muskrat Falls boondoggle project. The story's coming from the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, and her team. It becomes even more galling. Now, there might even be some interruption of service today as they test the Labrador Island link sometime between 8 this morning and 8 this evening. It might happen. If it does, they forecast the outage might last no more than 30 minutes. Okay. So, you know, the Auditor General does extremely important work. The question will be, when we've seen the two uh, reports coming about Nalcor operations, and this one focuses on 2013 to 2018, the big question will be, what do we do with this information other than allow it to be the salt that has now been injected directly into our collective wounds, knowing what's coming with Muskrat Falls, if it ever does come online in full, period. This one focuses on compensation. The first go around, there were huge questions looming about the 500 plus embedded contractors getting paid exorbitant amounts of money as opposed to being brought on short term as an actual employee at Nalcor, which would have come with less pay, less benefits, less perks. So that's that. This one is about how while there was a pay freeze for government employees in the area of 2016, say, well because of an order in council, Nalcor and its board of directors were allowed to pay way above the normal, way above the comparative for other like-minded uh, problem-solving, know-it ratings of other government employees. This is absolutely galling. Here we go. Executives at Nalcor were paid as much as 271,000 plus more, 270,000 plus more than equivalent government executives at the top of their pay scale. Managers were paid as much as 116,000 plus more than equivalent government managers. Okay. So, you know, for starters, how was it ever thought to be anything but foolhardy to have an order and council allow for this disparity, this uh, ability for the board of directors at NALCOR to allow these levels of compensation? It's absolutely out of this world. Of course, now we can go down through some of the other details that were exposed here. So there, are, of course, NALCOR exempt because of that order and council. Some of the contracts, executives were able to have 108 days of leave over, almost $13,000 in car allowance. The bonuses, of course, have gone away. And Jennifer Williams, I think, has done a good job in to try to rein in and to streamline the operations at Newfoundland-Labrador Hydro, because Nalcor is no more. But what do we do with this information? I don't even know if you want me to read out any more of these exhausting, frustrating numbers. But the bottom line is, they were given their own authority to do as they saw fit, While we were going through some very difficult financial times, individuals in the province were struggling, all the while this is what's going on at what was once known as Nalcor. There's also a question as to whether or not Nalcor as an entity was ever required as a crown corporation, as opposed to a government department to just manage the different projects through senior bureaucrats, which would have been monitored, their rate of pay would have been monitored. But here we are. So that again, what do we even do with this? You know, we can't rewrite history. I don't think there's any such thing as anyone being held to financial account for any of this stuff. And if there is, we can have that type of discussion here on the program. And, of course, the Auditor General says she's d- disappointed by the lack of change. There has been some adjustments made by Ms. Williams. And, okay, so here we go. While we all sit back and wait and watch for Musgrave Falls to finally be completed, when and if it ever does, then we see this report, and I read through it, and I'm thinking, number one, how dare they? But number two, what am I supposed to do about this now? Right? If it examined 2013 to 2018, here we are four years later, we get the numbers, we can all be disappointed, frustrated, disgusted, and exhausted with it, but what do we do with it? And if you want to take it on and talk about it this morning, I suppose we can, but holy macaroni. All right, well, a quick sip of coffee, one second.
2: And what do you know, went down the wrong way. (coughs) Oh, we're off to a good start.
1: The story regarding... The shortage of radiation therapists, since the news has come out about one of the four radiation suites at the Bliss Murphy Center has been closed because of the shortage of radiation therapists, the stories are flowing into my, e- my email inbox. We spoke about Mary Kelly from Central yesterday and went posed with the decision as to whether or not she wants to go to Toronto for her radiation therapy because her appointments were delayed here, which brought her outside the 16-week window, which her, the radiation would have been most beneficial. She decided not to go. So she's played with the what-ifs. What if the cancer returns, and she can now think, oh, well, it's because I missed my radiation, or I didn't go to Toronto, or whatever the case may be. She's making a decision based on what's best for her. Since then, I've got four more family stories, because only three people have made their way to Toronto. Even if the province is willing to cover costs, it's still a massive complication for an already dire set of circumstances when you get a cancer diagnosis. So, four more families are telling me right now that they're in the midst of trying to make a decision about whether or not to go to Toronto. And knowing full well that just deciding to go doesn't mean you're going to get the treatment in a timely fashion even in Toronto. So apparently the Minister of Health Community Services Tom Osborne is going to join us shortly Mm -hmm. on the program. So that's absolutely on the list of concerns and if you want to pose any other uh, particular questions through me for the Minister, bring it forward and we're happy to have it. But that Traveling for cancer care is a massive failure. And of course, there's no end to the shortages in the healthcare system, but let's take it on. This one here, I just read it this morning and was amazed with the details inside this. And this is about a family who had their babies switched at birth. Unbelievable. So I don't know if you want to put the names out The Ruth Law, she's named in the story. She had a daughter at the Springdale Cottage Hospital in Triton, or pardon me, uh, the Springdale Cottage Hospital in 1969. The day after giving birth, the baby's brought in to Miss Lush, and she says, "I just don't think that's my child." You know, they both had blue eyes and a little whiff of blonde hair, but she thought, "I don't think this is my baby." All those years later, every now and then she'd have this pang in her gut, saying, "Something's not right here." The child didn't fit in with the rest of of their siblings, didn't look like them, didn't have the same attitude, didn't have the same goals for education and what have you. The other siblings went on to go to university. This particular child quit school at 15, went to work in the fish plant, and everybody thought, there's something wrong here. That's not my child. I used to think stories like this were urban myth, but apparently not. So through the jigs and the reels, the child, the actual daughter of Miss Lush, also felt something was wrong. And did some DNA testing and through the jigs and the reels, now found out that absolutely the babies were switched at birth. Now, the government says they can't do anything about it because it's actually in front of the courts. So I suppose I won't waste my time or your time by asking Minister Osborne because he's been asked and he says he can't comment on uh, the particulars because the case is in front of the courts. But he does say that they're working on ways to ensure this doesn't happen again. I would certainly hope so. Honest to God, I thought this was, you know, stuff that was urban legend, urban myth but apparently not, and very, very real. Can you imagine? Miss Lush, her daughter, even the daughter that she raised as her own, can you imagine the emotional turmoil? And when she found out, she went on to say that she cried for days. I bet she did. You know, I think as a father myself, imagine going through that and living all those years thinking that there was something wrong. So how that happened, I don't know, but she suggests that anybody that had a child at that particular hospital I should get a DNA test done because she thinks she's probably not alone. Anyway, that story is just unbelievable. Let's go. Okay, so this one, the expansion that's going to happen at the Health Sciences Center, basically around the emergency department. So it was budgeted in 2022 at about $10 million. Now the contract has been awarded to the Marco Group. The price tag, $40.5 million dollars. Now I guess just like the rest of us are seeing the soaring cost of whether it be labor and or product, goods, how can this possibly be the case as quick as that? Now there's going to be all kinds of conversation and concern about how Marco gets these government contracts, and we can take it on if you're so inclined. It's a public tender. It would be nice to see the bids that came from other entities. Fine. Because all cards on the table is always helpful to all of us, but four times the price tag. Okay. Now we need to have healthcare infrastructure. You know. I am still a bit confused about the announcement regarding replacing the St. Clairs Mercy Hospital ladder nowhere, but that's part of the conversation that we're happy to have if you're so inclined. And speaking of building and product and goods, I'm looking to speak with more and more people, in particular Port of Basque, but anywhere on the southwest coast, now that the housing compensation details are bet- better understood. So it seems that people are quite pleased with the approach that government is taking and the amount of money that's going to be able to flow to them to help recover because the insurance premiums that they paid all these years weren't worth anything if they had damage regarding the storm surge. So if you're on the southwest coast and want to talk about the co- housing compensation or any confusion that remains, please do. Also, I, you know yesterday I was taken to task by a couple of folks who were really quite mad at me for doubting for one second the upside, economically and otherwise, of any green hydrogen projects and the wind turbines associated with. My question, and I'll stick with it, is I still think we don't know enough about what's in it for us. Yes, it would be nice to be out in front in the infancy of this particular approach to transitioning fuels, green hydrogen in this case. Sure, if it brings some real value to the province, uh, insofar as the uh, Treasury goes, if it brings real economic upside to people in the region, sure. Things like this are great, they have to be done carefully, and they can't be rushed. We're talking about 1.6 million hectares of land that are possibly going to be bid upon. So, I'm going to stay with that thought, until we know more about exactly what's in it for us. Because it is not a bad thing for us to be selfish on this point. What's in it for us? If you want to take that on, you know what to do. And very quickly, I'm not even sure what to make of this, but So the Prime Minister is at the G20 summit in Bali, and there's all kinds of discussions regarding Ukraine and climate change and China. And so the Prime Minister was, depends on how you see the video yourself, I know the hate in some corners for Trudeau is really off the charts. So there's a a discussion or a berating or an argument or a something or other between Prime Minister Trudeau and Chinese President Xi. We know there's been all kinds of problems regarding China and the whole entire world and this country. Chinese meddling in the elections. There's a report that's come out that they had installed some eleven candidates in a recent federal election. First question, who are these candidates? How come we can't find that much out? And then we've seen China being told through the Investment Act in Canada that they had had to divest in three different companies that were producing critical minerals. Then we had the the Huawei issue. And there was actually a person arrested a couple of days ago here in this country who was working for China, charged with espionage. They used to work at Hydro-Quebec and they were sharing state secrets with the Chinese, has been arrested and charged with espionage. So the Prime Minister has a private discussion with Xi and like is always the case, the notes about what was discussed, high-level stuff, you know, Ukraine, North Korea, and meddling in the elections. It made its way to the press, which we hope it would always be the case, so Depends on who you are, where you are, and what your political leanings might be. Is It's either, one, he was berated, or two, he stood up to him. He didn't run away. I don't know what people think anyone should do in that case. We're not going to see a replay of Trudeau Brazo in the boxing ring between him and G. So it's remarkable the reactions that come in. I don't know what to make of it in the first place, but I do think some of it is manufactured outrage. So what did you see when you saw the video and you want to talk about anything else? Like that. Also today, of course, Greg Smith is over at Daffodil Place 24-hour radiothon, trying to raise money for the ongoing operations at Daffodil Place. It's a one-night stand. There's also some opportunities when you make a donation to be entered in for a, a do- bunch of different draws for kitchen aid appliances, which is nice. So go to cancerca one NL, or you can call toll-free 1-844-229. 0146. So it started at 7 o'clock this morning, runs until 7 a.m. tomorrow, or six fifty-nine tomorrow morning. So if you can, please do indeed make that donation. Another opportunity to make a donation to make some child's Christmas a bit happier is with the VOCM Care's Happy Tree. And happy we wake them up uh, at the Avalon Mall. 9.30 a.m. Saturday morning. There's also Happy Trees in Clarenville at the Random Square Shopping Center, Gander, you can drop off the gifts at the Gander Mall, Grand Falls, Windsor at the Exploits Valley Mall, Marystown at the Peninsula Mall, and, of course, right here at the Babylon Mall, or right around Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne, is in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number ten. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Good morning, Minister Osborne. You're on the air.
3: Well, thank you for having me on the show, Petty. I wanted to call. I know you've announced uh, the uh, Daffodil Place uh, radiothon that's on today. I heard Greg Smith as well, and wanted to uh, call in and help get it started. The Department of Health and Community Services is pleased to be providing $50,000 uh, to this very worthwhile cause and uh, encouraging others to also uh, donate. I know that, um, you know, the the uh, folks at that place provide a phenomenal service. Uh, cancer in, in this province touches so many people um whether it's a, an individual uh, being personally impacted, a family member um, or friend or neighbor, um, one in two people in this province will be touched by cancer in some way throughout their lifetime. Um, and uh, just wanted to encourage your, your callers and listeners to uh, support Daphaville Place, um, the important work they do, uh, for their clients um, and, and the, the, the work that the caregivers do of providing accommodations, meals, transportation, uh, and other supports is so, so important to the community.
1: The cost that they offer to folks traveling to St. John's for treatment is $30 a day for one person in a standard room. But it still costs the Canadian Cancer Society $100 to provide that room and the meals and the transportation and other supports. So for the one-night stand, if you can make a $100 donation... It'll go a long way to keeping the operations afloat at Daffodil Place. When they had the capital fundraising campaign, it was simply to build a building, not for ongoing operational cost coverage. So this is a big big day for the folks at Daffodil Place, and I would suggest it's a big day for the folks of the province because you never know when you might be the family that needs the accommodations and the supports at Daffodil Place. So uh, I'm sure everyone there appreciates the $50,000 from the provincial government. And on that front, on cancer care, When were you first made aware of the shortage or the numbers of people who are radiation therapists quitting and consequently one of the four radiation suites at the Bliss Centre has been closed? When were you first aware?
3: Uh, We were made aware of that um, uh, when uh, we had two individuals um, who had left last week. Uh, Prior to that, uh, uh, there were uh, a shortage of staff. So Eastern Health did make us aware um, that one of the units would be Uh, affected so three of the four units are now in operation Uh, the province and Eastern Health um, are partnered with uh, Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto because of the uh, staffing shortages um, and uh, you know to ensure that uh, patients receive the radiation therapy that they need you know, while three of the four units are working here, there, there was uh, that impact of the fourth unit not uh, in operation. So we partnered with Princess Margaret to ensure that uh, patients who need the radiation therapy Uh, can travel to Princess Margaret, and and the province will cover all the costs.
1: But does it ensure that they get the radiation treatment on time? Like, for instance, the story of Mary Kelly in Central. Her oncologist said 16 weeks after surgery is the most beneficial time to get your treatment. She was also told that there's no guarantee that she's going to get the treatment on time, even if she makes her way to Toronto. So how does it actually ensure treatment if they can't get a guarantee from the Princess Margaret Centre?
3: Well, Princess Margaret are accepting uh, patients. Uh, I know that three have been referred up and accepted at Princess Margaret uh, as of yesterday, um, or well, the day before yesterday, sorry. Uh, those numbers uh, would been updated on. So uh, Princess Margaret are accepting uh, referrals that the province is making. And, uh, you know, we hope that we are able to recruit Um, the radiation therapists here and get the fourth unit up and running Um, I know uh, we are looking at as a province um, uh, retention uh, challenges within that group Uh, we've been we've had discussions uh, with the union and we understand uh, some of the challenges and, and we are working to try to
1: address those what are the challenges? Like, why did the first two leave? Was it a work-life balance issue? They're, they don't think they get paid enough? There was a toxic relationship with the management at the centre or the regional health authority. So why did they leave? Do we know?
3: Uh, it is uh, a matter of, of compensation uh, and the fact, you know, in, in to some degree, the fact that uh, the radiation therapists are paid more elsewhere Um, you know, so that is something we're looking at. Uh, Obviously, you know, there are are workplace um, issues whenever uh, a group is understaffed, um, and we understand that as well. Uh, You know, that's a challenge that this province is facing. It's a a challenge every province is facing. Uh, In speaking with my colleagues in in other provinces, um, you know, the, the the challenges in terms of our healthcare professionals and being mandated to work overtime or being short-staffed and, and the pressures that that puts on um, the the healthcare professionals is happening across the country. So, you know, there there are no easy answers if we're all competing for the same healthcare professionals. But uh, in this province, we have put a number of initiatives in place, um, you know, whether it's the, the, uh, the mission to Bangalore for registered and, and practical nurses or uh, the incentives put in place, The you know, we've talked about and will make uh, further announcements uh, on other missions to recruit uh, internationally as well. Because we understand um, that we need more healthcare professionals in the system, uh, you know, I, I've said many times we need people working shoulder to shoulder with the healthcare professionals we have to help lift that load.
1: Do we have targets set? Because it's always helpful to have a threshold that you know you can measure success. You know, for for instance, recruiting registered nurses in India. Yvette at coffee at the union says there's 600 vacancies, so what's the target goal in India, for instance?
3: well you know we haven't set a <clears throat> excuse me we haven't set a specific target in india uh, we will recruit as many as we can it's not likely we'll get 600 in, in india so you know there, there's no uh, ceiling on the number of individuals that we will accept we know uh, we have 600 vacancies in the province so the target is we will continue to recruit We fill
1: those positions. One more area, nurse practitioners. You've given a directive to the regional health authorities to hire more, to recruit more. No real specifics on recruit from where or how, but there's 251 uh, nurse practitioners licensed in the province, so says the college. We only graduate about 12 per year from Memorial University's nurse practitioner program, so while we will go elsewhere in the country and abroad to try to recruit nurse practitioners, What's the thought about trying to establish more seats at Memorial University? Because if we're only graduating 12 and we need who knows how many, if we're going to try to expand collaborative care clinics to uh, 35 around the province, it'll be impossible without this particular healthcare discipline. So why not look to expand here so that we don't have this type of recruiting worry or project elsewhere?
3: We are indeed. And, you know, we've had um, discussions with the dean um, at Memorial University, she has been, uh, very open to those discussions and is working with us on um, areas where we can expand uh, the number of nursing seats, uh, the you know uh, nurse practitioner uh, RN and and uh, uh, you know looking at uh, how we can expand. As you know, we've expanded the number of RN seats by 25% in the province last year, um, and the discussions continue. Um, where we can make uh, further improvements,
1: including with nurse practitioners. So is it 25 additional seats or 25% more seats? 25% more. Well, hasn't there been nursing schools closed in full in this province in the recent years?
3: Uh, I'm not sure of that, I don't know. Uh, but I know we have um, uh, three nursing schools now. Uh, myself and the Premier have gone in to uh, the Centre for Nursing Studies, so we've gone to Forest Road, um, and we've, you know, said to every uh, student there that they have a job when they, uh, when they graduate. Uh, there were job offers in, in the packets that we have provided, you know. So we are recruiting at home as well, um, and you know, letting our students in our nursing studies know that when they graduate they have a job in this province working at
1: home. We appreciate the time this morning Minister, thank you.
3: My pleasure, thank
1: you Patty. Take care, bye bye. Tom Osborne is the Minister of Health Community Services. Of course there's a thousand other things to talk about in healthcare. and someone wanted me to ask about booster shots and flu shots and the like so what I think is probably the best there is because we're not talking an operational issue is to have pharmacists or someone from public health to come on about the effectiveness or the, uh, the uh, yes, the effectiveness of the flu shot, the boosted flu shot for seniors. Those things are on my list, but I think I'm gonna ask someone who's actually in the business of delivering or making recommendations as opposed to operations at healthcare, so I will get those questions answered for you. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bob's in the queue to talk about the fishery, don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Bob, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning.
4: Uh, Patty, apparently we can't do anything about uh, the seals. No market, American ban. Only more money in the coffers for the anti-seal people when you when you open up that can of worms. So it's an impossible situation, and the government got no appetite. The federal government got no appetite for the publicity. They're not even going to try, uh, you know, and they're not going to go there at all, no? they're not
1: going to touch that. Really. What leads you to believe that? Because the folks uh, in the industry that were in the room for those two days were encouraged that the federal government is willing to do more, including for the very first time in a long time, actually do some scientific data compilation to maybe give it some fuel to trying to strike a better balance in the ecosystem. At least that's what the folks in the industry are saying.
4: Yeah, it's not science we need, we need markets, so I mean... Well, what's the point? This, I don't know why that's being done anyway. Maybe it's divert attention, but it's all futile. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't count on anything there. I wouldn't even talk about it. I don't think it can happen.
1: right? Well, who do you think should be responsible for expanding or creating a market? Folks who are actually in the industry or the government, or both? Because I, I think sometimes we think the government should do all of these things, but in most every other industry, the businesses themselves. They go out and they do the legwork to find out where they can sell whatever it is they're manufacturing or producing, like seal meat or anything else.
4: Yeah, but uh, the federal government don't have the willingness. And it's like with the oil. The federal government got control over everything. So if they don't take the initiative, it's not going to happen, right? That's the way it is with everything. you know, just uh, admit for a minute or concede for a minute that there's nothing going to happen with the seal fishery. Right? It's been on to talk about that now for the last 50 years, and uh, you know now you all we got the people talking about what the seals eat. You know, we know they tear the belly out of the cod and they eat uh, liver. I mean, the liver's the best. They got good taste. The liver's the best part of the cod because. We drank cod liver oil when we were youngsters in school. So they got the most omega properties. But anyway, let's forget about uh, the seal sea fishery for now. What about the foreign overfishing? That's what caused the demise of the cod in the first place. Can they uh, do anything about that?
1: Good, Good question. And certainly foreign ownership of whatever percentage of quota and foreign overfishing has been a major league problem. We all know it. NAFO seems to be a completely toothless organization. That's not helping matters. So the short answer is yes. But I don't even know how that works either. So if we have an organization that is supposed to do that type of work on the world's behalf and they're not doing it, you know, remember back when Brian Tobin talked about a shot over the bow, right? Captain Canada. and I think at that time it was a a Spanish trawler, maybe? So, yeah, something should be done. How that works, though, Bob, I don't know. Because, you know, if there's a group that are out there supposedly doing that work on our behalf, then what are next steps? Like, what do you think?
4: Well, Gus Etchiger, he, uh, approached the Prime Minister, him and a group. And the uh, Prime Minister at the time, I don't know if it was Lester Pearson, promised to uh, to do something about it. But I got the feeling he looked into that, and when he found out the consequences, he, he gave up on it. Uh, you know, you'd have to extend the 200-mile limit to the edge of the uh, continental shelf. So then we got to know what what about continental shelves? What about the Law of the Sea uh, Conference? uh, How did that read? So, I mean, is that something that we've been uh, uh, defaming the federal government about for the last uh, 50 years? Or can they do something about that? Maybe it's all done in trade deals or trading off. uh, Canadian goods with Canada, with Newfoundland fish, right?
1: That's part of it, absolutely. And I asked that, uh, a specific question of the Federal Minister of Fisheries, Joyce Murray, on this program last week. You know, talking about we've always been giving and bending. And in some form, breaking when we're doing diplomatic relationships and/or trying to create uh, more trade with other countries, we've just given away fish. We haven't. I don't think we've gotten much in this province in return. Maybe there's been some markets open for soybeans or wheat or auto parts or something or other. But what did we ever get with negotiating away? any of the fish stocks that we harvest? It's an excellent question, and the minister really didn't have much to say about it. I tried to set it up like this. So here come the Germans with the want to get green hydrogen from the use of our resources here, water, wind, and port notably, and land for wind turbines. So what are we getting in return? You know, is there a way for some of the trade decisions in the past to be renegotiated so that we actually get something in return for the amount of fish stocks that have been negotiated away? I don't know if we've ever gotten anything. So I think you're right on the money on that one, Bob. But
4: how, how are we giving them quotas? Are we giving them quotas on, on uh, up to the, on the edge of the continental shelf? Are we giving them inside? Sure, we haven't got... Uh, how can we give quotas if we don't uh, have got no rights on the continental shelf. Okay. Hello?
1: Yes, go ahead.
4: I say, how are we, how can we give quotas, right? (laughs) I don't know, Bob. Anyway, uh, let's forget about that. Uh, The the third thing I want to talk about is the oil. And that's the same thing. It all got to do with the federal government. Trudeau's preening himself on the world stage, and we're making the sacrifice. And it's not about climate change. This is about, uh, you know, while there's a shortage of oil, it can control inflation. He just released some oil uh, recently.
1: Uh, what?
4: Uh, Biden just released some oil, uh, so many barrels of oil recently, didn't he?
1: Yeah, out of their own strategic reserves, yep.
4: Yeah, and that affected, you know, that affects the price of gas and the price that brings down inflation or should.
1: Well, kind of two different sets of circumstances between the two countries, number one being refining capacity.
4: You know, how come Newfoundlanders are so willing to sacrifice the billions of dollars and let Saudi Arabia and others fill the gap? I mean, uh, some woman uh, did a study on that, and we've come, uh, they predicted uh, uh, the predictions for uh, where we'll stand later. And uh, pollution uh, didn't, uh, didn't really come true. They're not as bad as they thought they'd be. And there's ways of controlling, uh, to, you know, taking it out of the, uh, the atmosphere. And Newfoundland and others are doing everything they can to go green. They're trying to get natural gas now. We've got wind power. We've got hydropower.
1: Natural gas is a huge opportunity for the entire country.
4: And yeah, so we got the most credits in the world, but here we're the ones making the sacrifice, and we're the poor ones, and Trudeau's making the decision. And Newfoundlanders are, are going along with us.
1: What decision are we talking about?
4: Well, I mean, uh, the, the, the PC party is talking about the destruction and the, well, everything that the, climate, that the climate change is causing. And everyone is going there, but they're not going about what's happening in the meantime, Uh, you know, the fairness. You know, uh, it don't seem like anybody is fighting the good fight. We need a Donald Trump down here or something. No, we don't. That's what what
1: we do not need.
4: It seems like uh, Alberta fights for their rights and Quebec fights for their rights. They don't take the responsibility for uh, the whole world and, and reducing the oil. So I mean, where did Trudeau get off? You know, I mean, that's just, actually that's the pattern. That's the way we've been treated ever since we joined Confederation.
1: Well, the most recent uh, a proposal for an oil field off our shores was just released by the federal government, and there's zero in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada at this moment in time from anywhere in the country.
4: So uh, what will happen now when they go to get approval? Will they stiffen the... You know? Oh, it's
1: hard to say they what's got. going to happen in the future, Bob. I have no idea.
4: It negates the, uh, the Atlantic Accord. Uh, you know, the minister having control over uh, our environmental assessments. We should be able to make them ourselves, shouldn't we?
1: There's always going to be a relationship, as is already established in the Atlantic Accord, between... The country, the Ottawa and the province on matters such as oil and gas potential development. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Bob.
4: Okay, good. All the best. Happy, thanks.
1: Anytime. Bye bye. All right, take a break. Barry's in the queue to talk about doctor shortages. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line four. Barry, you're on the air.
5: Good morning, Petty. Good morning this is not really about the doctor shortage as such it's oh. about i was listening to yesterday about the transfer of medical records from one doctor to another yep and they were talking everyone was talking about how much they were paying and so on uh, so i thought i'd share my experience my i've been i was with a doctor for decades and he retired 2 years ago and uh, gave us a heads up on it and uh, and so that we could get another doctor I was fortunate in getting a, a, another doctor so I said to him I said how about my records um, you know who how do we get them transferred and what was the cost and so on he said just nothing to transfer he said your your record is electronically stored in the provincial um, data bank of records and um, the Incom- the doctor that you're going to be assigned to will have just as much access to it once you give him permission to uh, access all the files, all of your medical files. There's nothing, to tra- there's nothing to transfer, so there's no cost involved to anyone, so there's nothing to be done.
1: There's where the confusion lies, isn't it? Because no. the, uh, no. the person that... Uh, Told me the story. I've heard it many, many times, but it's the old three hundred dollars to retrieve it from a company in Ontario, which is the closest facility that has a secure designation that is, uh, is allowed to handle these files. They went back and they asked about the, the exact same thing: Isn't there an electronic storage of my medical records and some database in the province? And that doctor's office said no. <laughs> and I and then That's I heard the worst. Th- I I heard your story as well. So my question would be: Are the doctors wherever they're practicing in this province obligated to store them electronically so we can avoid any of this paper shuffle and the clerical work required and the potential cost.
5: Um, my, my knowledge from my doctor was he, was he was planning to retire when he was 65 uh, there a few years ago and uh, he, he had to stay on a bit longer to, in order to uh, make electronic copies of all of his files because up to then he had been using files, and I had a paper file there three or four inches thick after being with him for several decades. And, uh, And so once he got all the electronics, but I thought he was, if not required, then strongly pressured to do so. Okay. Because, but since if if a doctor is filing their records electronically, and you'll know whether they are, because one, if you remember going to a doctor's office, the nurse would bring or the assistant would bring in a, a paper folder in front of the doctor's on his desk and he would pr- leaf through it and find your records and so on. Now, they just look at the screen. But that screen is uh, stored by the Center for Health Information, I think, here in the province, and uh, anyone you give a record to i mean i called an 811 number and uh you know once i i was talking to the uh, nurse practitioner that came on uh she was able to access my file because it's all there there's nothing to be transferred it's just located in a central um database in the province as far as i know well i mean you know it's in the cloud whatever that means and uh any doctor with authorization can access it. And so there's nothing to transfer unless it hasn't been recorded electronically in the first place, in which case, whose cost, that's the fault flaw, flaw of the doctor who didn't do the work in the first place, and now he's charging people to get paper copies. I, I, I mentioned to a friend of mine, and, and he said it was criminal, that there are people taking money under false pretenses.
1: Well, and that's why I, I posed the question the way I did. Is it an option? Are they obligated? What is it? Because if it's a free-for-all out there, then, of course, the upside of even at the clinic being able to charge a $125 clerical fee to give someone their own personal health information, which I know is co-owned between the doctor, the clinic, and the patient themselves. But if there's an obligation, then no one should ever have to pay a single cent, like you're reporting here this morning. If there's simply made optional, then that's an, an enormous problem that needn't be that way. So I guess what I'll have to do is just uh, send a quick note to the NLMA and see what is it. What's the answer to that very simple question?
5: Yeah, it, 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 to me it's pretty simple because as far as I know, I mean, as I said, I had a file there after several decades, uh, up three, four, five inches thick, and as far as I know, I never got it. But I'm assuming he simply had the shred the shredding company come in and shred all these little files because they're they're worthless in a way once they once the data that's on in them. Have been recorded electronically, then they're they last they're permanently established on a database that's that any doctor that uh, has the right to do so can access. So there's nothing to be transferred. Understood. To, yeah, I, I've as uh, like I said, I'm uh, I got a feeling that there's something something somewhat if not illegal, then certainly unethical about what some people are doing. Now, uh, just a question to you the cases that the examples that i didn 't hear all of the program yesterday because uh, I tried to get on yesterday to mention it but did were they talking about in province transfers or were they talking about province to province transfer because there might be some cost involved in a province to province
1: transfer well no it wasn 't uh, transferring from one doctor to another. What it was was that there 's a third party entity that 's got the Classification regarding security of the files. That is an independent operator in Ontario. Some doctors have sent their patient rosters, uh, medical records, to that particular entity, which charges you 300 bucks per person to get it back. That's the story, and that's how this all started. Oh, but,
5: okay. That's yeah, yeah. That's yeah. But what oh.
1: I will do is, like I said, is I'll follow up with the NLMA to see what actually is the obligation on behalf of the doctor in how they handle my medical files. So that's what exactly what I'm going to do.
5: Yeah. Because my understanding is that there's okay. a, a health information center um, uh, which has the electronic storage of Newfoundland MCP customers, which is pretty well, every, well, literally everyone in the province.
1: But, of course, that's just for billing. That wouldn't be the compilation no, of no, your no, records no, at I'm, MCP. No,
5: I'm talking about your entire records.
1: Okay. Like I said, I'll follow up, Barry. Yep. I, I absolutely will.
5: Yep. Okay. Thanks, Patty.
1: Appreciate this. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to the break, so the issue regarding the four times the original price tag for the expansion at the healthcare, uh, healthcare, uh, emergency department. Pardon me, at the health sciences. So now it's forty point five. Here's the results of the public tendering. JMJ Holdings, their bid for that project was forty one thousand four hundred odd. Palmerlo Incorporated. Pardon me, uh, JMJ Holdings forty one million four. Uh, Palmerlo Incorporated forty one million two. Olympic Construction, $44 Their Marco Group, $40.5 million. So there's the results of the public tendering for those who were curious. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about Share the Harvest and something or other about Mr. Majumder.
0: Sean Majumder, don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Let's go line number where, David? Where are we starting this particular hour? Line number three. Margot, you're on the air.
0: Good morning, Patty.
1: How are you this morning? I'm okay. How are you doing?
6: I'm
7: number one. Thank you. Excuse me. I wanted to call in about um, Sean Majunder's Love Tour, which we took in last Saturday, the 12th of November. And uh, what a magnificent production. It was really, really well done. And he started off the show by allowing an 11-year-old Christian Bizak to uh, do his presentation, and I think he's well on his way to his career. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we really enjoy Sean. Of course, uh, I remember him when he was when he started off in 24 with Chris, uh, with uh, Kiefer Sullivan back years ago as the terrorist, and I told him so, and he got. A Good kick out
1: of that yeah that was on 24
7: but, was it that was on 20 that was what it was called yes and yeah. I used to faithfully watch that for sure that was a great show oh it wasn't it I really enjoyed that um the the other thing is we had another purpose uh, myself and Gary and Jerry and Nick um we went because Sean or so, Sean has been chosen by uh, Racketton Cobo uh, to voice one of our books by Emily Heptage called Alone on the Trail, which is quite an accomplishment. So we brought in a book with um, her signature on it, of course. And at the end of the show, what Sean was doing, was he was offering himself, and he's done it at all his tours, Uh, anyone who wanted to get a picture taken with Sean could pay $10, and all of the proceeds would go to the Fiona, um, Hurricane Fiona. And... You know the people lined up; it was magnificent. So we four had our picture taken, and of course uh, we had a picture taken with the book in in the uh, in the front. And um, I I suggested to Sean that he call you and and let you know just how much money he's taken in because I heard an astronomical amount for Labrador, and of course he's done his shows all the way across. And I'm not sure if it concluded on Saturday or if there's further shows but uh, oh my goodness it was so so good um he is such a talent, and it's like he wraps his arms around the whole audience. And the show was sold out, by the way, so there weren't any tickets available for latecomers, and, uh, which is wonderful to hear as well.
1: Majumder's great. He's obviously a huge talent, and he's had mm-hmm. some pretty cool roles over the years. I was a little bit surprised when the, they parted ways between 22 Minutes and uh, Majumder's role on that program which has been running mm-hmm. 25 plus years now at this point
7: yes for well, i'm sure. glad
1: you enjoyed the show margo thanks for telling us about it
7: and he does have some new movies coming up as well but uh, i'd like for you to reach out to sean and find out what the t- final tally is uh, because i said 100 percent. 100 the proceeds are going to the fiona um you know fiasco actually
1: yeah i'll drop a note
7: Okay, thank you so much, and I really appreciate being allowed to come on. Thanks, Margo. Thanks. All right, honey. Take Bye. care.
1: Bye-bye. Uh, Majumder, he's, uh, he's a beauty. Let's go line one. Barry, around on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Paddy, uh, I was meant to call you yesterday,
8: yesterday being the third anniversary of the uh, P- Paula program for Sharing the Harvest. And uh we uh we're we're it, the reading now is in the House of Assembly. It's all, already after having the third reading, I believe that that's it, and then it goes to the uh, into the Gazette, I believe. I'm not quite sure terminology or procedure. But it's pretty well a done deal, Patty. And uh I'd like to say that, you know, thank you, thanks to thanks everybody that supported us. Thanks to everybody who donated. Uh we we just recently, uh, last Thursday I believe it was Uh, uh, one of our designated hunters for a charity license under Sharing the Harvest, harvested a 10-point bull, and the whole thing got uh, donated to us, and we're waiting now to distribute that. It was over 100 packages, and myself, I had my own personal license, and I made my second ship back to Betas there last week, this weekend pass, harvested a moose and donated, uh, I think I got 76 packages of moose burger meat in our freezer now waiting to be distributed. Our freezer is black. And we'd like to reach out to more food banks or have have more food banks reach out to us. We're dealing with uh, Single Parent Association, Bridges to Hope, uh, Connections for Seniors here in St. John's. We're hoping to branch out to other food banks, and uh, they need to get their permits and uh, give us a call. If we can help them, we certainly will. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, Patty, we made donations to to those three food banks, to the Connections for Seniors, which is a new food bank uh, uh, group. That we donate to. I donated a gallon of partridge berries. I donated eight rabbits. We donated uh, I don't know how many packs of moose burgers, and we had our first ever caribou meat donation. We donated some of that. So uh, if you know people, if organizations want to get on board with us, we you know, we're more than willing to share the uh, share the harvest with them. Uh, I'd also like to say, Patty, to make a plea to hunter, big game hunters in the province that uh, you know it's not too late to make a donation. Even if you got your meat processed by a butcher's home in your deep freezer, you can still donate it up to the end, up to the uh, second set, first Saturday in January, I believe the date is. And when you get the meat, Patty, you know if you if you if you if you have like a half a moose yourself, uh, and that, that's way too much for one person to eat. Now, I'm not saying that one person can't eat it, but, it's you know, in the summertime, springtime, summertime, it gets thrown out in the garbage, Patty, and this program is going to address the waste each and everything else by by giving it to uh, uh, local food banks. And I'd like to say as well, uh, clear up a misconception, Patty, that is that just if you're in Central and you want to donate moose meat, that moose meat does not go, does not go to St. John's. It will go to the, a uh, local food bank, in your neck of the woods, and you can bring it there too, or we can we can arrange translation, cetera. So you know, there's all kinds of things on the go, and uh, we're just uh, trying to just keep up with it. We're doing more this year than we've done last year, and each year seems to be getting better. So uh, thanks to the uh, to the cooperation of big game hunters here in Province but we feel that uh, we can do more, and we want to do more.
1: Well, I think it's a great program. It's about time. It took a little bit too long for it to make its way through the House of Assembly. I know there's some amendments to make it easier for the expansion of uh, accredited butchers and food banks and the like. So uh, good job by you and Debbie and everyone else who's been involved with this. Great program.
8: Thank you, Patty, and I'd like to give a shout out to my fellow directors, uh, Debbie Wiseman and Lucas Robertson, doing the job that they're doing and helping out as much as they can. And uh, yes, you're right, it, but it shouldn't have taken. It's right now. It's in. A, we're in our 14th year of waiting for this program to become a reality. So in the past three years, it was you know it was started. But what happened to the other years in the past? I'm not griping, and Patty. Just that you know, such a, I see, I've seen the value in such a program, and uh, I'm, uh, it's too bad that the politicians didn't. But uh, we finally have it on the go now, and that's a positive thing, and that's where we're moving forward
1: with. Appreciate this. Keep it up, Barry.
8: Thanks very much, Patty. And as always, it's been a pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Take care. All right, bye bye. There we go. All right, uh, Nick's in the queue to talk EVs. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Nick, you're on the air.
2: Hi. Uh, I heard that Electric Ganel, I think it's called, uh, got a truck donated to them by Ford there uh, recently, an F 150, and they're test driving it to see the kilometers and what she's good for. Uh, are they planning on? I just got a couple questions. If they're planning on uh, towing a trailer like a normal person would, a like camper trailer or so forth, and if they're planning on uh, looking into uh, trying this out again when the battery life is a couple years old, because like any battery, it's not going to take itself uh, to pop a charge and for the most part um if you're towing a trailer uh last i heard they were getting 300 kilometers on every charge but i mean if you're towing a trailer my god i don't think you'd make it for a jackspot
1: normal people tow trailers is that how you set that up for me you say that normal people i think that's the word you use well, normal people tow trailers
2: well i mean just you know people that uh, i'm just trying to um Sum it up as if, like your average uh, person that has a truck. Usually, got a trailer to tow behind. No, they don't. <laughs> what are you talking what about?
1: It? <laughs> Man, how many pickup trucks are out there that have never been used as a truck, first nor last? The only thing that's ever been in the bed of the truck is a run to the dump or some groceries.
2: Okay, well, fine. Load load the dump up. Okay. I'm well, uh, sorry, what's uh,
1: the what's the point you're, you're trying to make?
2: My, my point I'm making is that if you're uh, only testing the truck while she's empty, nothing in the pan and nothing on the hitch. I mean, when the person goes by this truck and they do, I mean, they, they do load it up or they do hitch it up, uh, it's not going to get the same uh, climb ratings. Probably you get a third of it.
1: Now, Electric and L, of course, they'll do whatever they want as a standalone entity, but the manufacturers, don't they do that type of testing so that information can be uh, shared with their customers?
2: Uh, where they donated the truck to do this uh, little joy ride, uh, you know, they'd uh, try this out on parachute ride, you know.
1: Wouldn't the manufacturer be responsible for that type of information gathering for their customers?
2: You would think, but if it's not good, they won't give it out.
1: What's I your What's your concern here, though, Nick? I'm a little confused at the starting point.
2: That, my concern is, uh, you know, is the battery life and how many they are seeing that they're getting on uh, each charge and how quick a charge is. You, know, you can run and get fast food and come out and the battery's all charged. That's fine Danny, the Battery's brand new. Well, what my point is, when the battery's a couple years old. Or if you got a load on the back, like a trailer, like some people have in Newfoundland, uh, or you get some people that put stuff in the pan of the box to go to the dump, you know, like you're not getting the same kilometers. You don't get it with gas. So, like, I'd like to know what the kilometers would be uh, with, you know, with this truck that we're testing out now. If they would try something like that, I'm only asking if they would try it. I don't. It, it means the raw beans if they do. I just figured I'd throw throw out a suggestion that they try it.
1: Have you looked to any of the manufacturers and the type of testing they do for the information that customers like yourself might want?
2: And uh, I haven't seen it.
1: But you you have looked for it, have you?
2: I have looked, yeah, because I got a camper trailer. I'm like one of the, the people out there that got one. And, uh, you know, I do tow it, and I do use my truck for towing. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, there's about, a, I'd say, 500 campers in Jack's Pond that do the same thing as me, and they're probably all wondering because, you know, the world's going toward EV. Well, let's make it so it suits everybody. You know, we're just trying to figure out what, or people like me, are trying to figure out, like, is it worth the the switch? You're not
1: actually considering it, though, are you, Nick? I was, yeah. Okay, so you have actually asked a Ford dealer here for some of those numbers? Because I would think, you know, Electric NL is one group that will do whatever they see fit. And I know they had a story where they drove across the country and uh, some of the uh, issues are what they saw, what they felt, how the vehicle performed. That's all fine and dandy. So if I understand you correctly, if I called Cabot Ford or Avalon Ford today looking for some more information beyond what Electric NL provides, they don't have any? I'm surprised to hear that.
2: I've actually called, and uh, they couldn't come up with uh, anything for towing or uh, low capacity. Okay. I asked, if, uh, do you know what call, uh, how many kilometers did we get on a charge? And they said, uh, actually, I couldn't even answer that. They said, that was the exact word said to me by the salesman. Okay. But anyways, other than that, uh, just one other small thing I wanted to jump over to. Uh, Dave Brazil was talking about uh, this hospital contract Marcos got yeah. that went from $10 million to 40. Why can't we put this back up on public tender if... Uh, if Marco can't do it for the $10 million that was agreed on, uh, even with inflation, why don't we just put this uh, contract back up and let him rebid it?
1: But that's not how that works, though, Nick. Well, Marco doesn't agree to something. The budget, uh, the Department of Finance, forecasted a predicted cost, which has nothing to do with the replies to the RFP.
2: Okay, well, I'm just saying, you know, we went up uh, such a high rate of money and uh, we're paying for it.
1: So well, I have the bid results. If you'd like to hear them, sure, sure. Okay, so uh, JMJ Holdings' their bid was forty one million four. Pomerlo Incorporated was forty one million two. Olympic Construction Limited was forty four million plus. The Marco Group forty point five million. They won the eventual bid, the contract.
2: Okay, very good.
1: Yeah, so it looks like all the companies were within 4 million of each other. So, I, you know, I can't rationalize an increase from 10 to 40. But, of course, I also know that the Department of Finance, their forecast has nothing to do with the reality that the companies themselves would reply to an RFP. So those are the numbers as per the government's website itself for the four bids that came in and the value
2: of. Very good. All right. Thanks, buddy.
1: Okay, Nick. All the best. All right. Take care. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you on a topic of your
0: choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Top of the board, say good morning to the leader of the NDP. He's the member for St. John Center. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air.
0: Good morning,
9: Patty. How are you doing? Not
1: too bad. Thank you. How about you?
9: Oh, can't complain. Uh, it's more seasonal weather. I wish it was a little bit cooler and less rain, but hey, that's not, that's fine. All part of it. <laughs> I'm all part of it. I've just got to call in and just comment on the the two uh, the stories regarding the health sciences ER and the NALCOR salaries and the uh, ag report i i i i have to say the word that keeps i i seem to be using a lot of my vocabulary lately is the word flabbergasted um and yet i was looking at your So i think the question of the day are you uh asking people are they surprised and uh the vast majority of people are saying no and i think we're uh, when we're at the stage where they, that uh, that it no longer um shocks uh shocks us i think we should be shocked by that as well but uh, i i'm just absolutely amazed when i look at the how how the money c- c- could have been uh, better spent to serve people certainly with the nalcor salaries over that time and uh, how we let that g- how how we let the, how government let that get away from them? Where was the oversight? And I and I think of other groups uh, of other uh, examples of reports I've read uh, on the the ferries, the two new veteran and the legionnaire, and uh, you read the AG report, and it seems like we just never our government never seems to learn the lesson <laughs> about the need to be prudent with people's um, with the public's money. And yet every time I, I have to say when I, bring, uh, br- uh, when I bring up issues in the House or I, to the ministers about, look, here's what we need to be doing to, for people who are in need, usually usually the line that comes back is, well, that's fine, Jim, but where are we getting the money for that? How are we going to afford it? How are we going to pay for it? And yet it seems when it comes to uh, – w- w- with NALCOR, the, I-, I don't know if that question was ever asked. Uh, I know where the money came from. It came. It came out of your pocket, my pocket. In the long run, with regards to the hospital, the ER, and again, I've got to state, start, state this up front. I have no issue with new infrastructure. I guess, but it comes down to where the priorities are and what we need to be resolving.
1: Just before we jump oh, over sorry. to the health sciences yeah. center. I don't even know what to do with the other generals' report, to be honest with you, other than just be frustrated, yep. because there's not going to be anything that happens. There won't be any sort of financial accountability. If an order in council allowed for it to happen, then whether it be unethical or shady or nefarious or just ridiculous, whatever people want to label it as, all right. My question is, what, are we, what am I supposed to do with this?
9: So here's one thing we, uh, we've we been calling for, and I know uh, on the opposition, the independents ourselves. like. Even when it came to, uh, I, I'm thinking of like the future fund, for example, the debate. We wanted to bring this back to the House of make anything come back to the House of Assembly, because I think in the long run, if I if if there's anything that you, you probably is that it needs to come back there. You hit sort of hit the nail on the head. An order in council. It seems to be that it's it's behind closed doors. Uh, and I know that the argument will be: well, ultimately, the you know the uh, the, the uh, captain and so on and so forth uh, are uh, uh, answerable to the public. But I think at some point in the way there needs to be a lot more transparency. Otherwise, I'd, I think uh, we're going to be continued. You're going to be continued to uh, be uh, frustrated. Uh, people, I'm going to be I'm going to continue to be flabbergasted, and people are going to be are going to continue to be. Uh, to be uh uh non uh not unsurprised by it, and at uh, somewhere along the line that's got to change uh as to what the priorities are and and then I look at it in terms of the uh performance bonuses uh that that sometimes you have to scratch your head uh, and wonder well where were the uh where what was the performance that was being uh that was being rewarded but at some point along the way. When we're heading into a uh, winter season, where I know there are going to be people who are unable to uh, afford to heat, them, uh, heat their houses, unable to put food on the table, un- unable to pay rent, and uh, and and at the same time, it's hard to just. I, I'm I I get frustrated with it as well. Now I'm getting more frustrated and flabbergasted um, when I uh, look at the things that we need to be doing in 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 uh, addressing some of the issues, and yet here we see millions, tens of millions of dollars uh, out in, in bonuses and and. And salaries that—it's like it was a free for all. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so angry with it, right?
1: Well, I think that's probably a pretty common sentiment here today.
9: Yeah, and I think it I think from here on in and i don't know and i'd like to believe i would like to believe we learn our lessons yet but the more the more uh, ag reports i read uh the more it it seems like we it, like the lessons are never learned regardless of administration so from my point of view maybe on these things it should be a, 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 i think there should be more and uh, more uh, any uh, any of these decisions maybe should be uh, answerable to the House, not to the uh, lieutenant governor and council or the executive council. or Whoever it should come right back to the House and have that uh, fought and debate, so that we're that it's it's always front and centre. But I, I think it took an A G report to find uh, to uncover this at some point along the way. And an A G report looks at what what happened. Great, going forward. How do we prevent this? And at some point, that that's always got to be the case in real time, so that we're not waiting for a report going back that deals with. Uh, it, Years past, and and we're powerless to do anything. Uh, anyway, I, I I'm just I look at the priorities in my own district, the, the, what people are in need of, and uh, and I'm listening to uh, listening to your show, and I hear list of other, what other people are, are are struggling with, and I can't help but think, you know what, uh, we we probably need to be investing in uh, in people, uh, just the ordinary person who's trying to make get ahead, uh, and and put food on the table, as opposed to. Lining the pockets and, and uh, you know, uh, of, a, of a few co- executives, which, <laughs> in many cases, have, probably have, saddled, have saddled, seem to have saddled us with the burden of Muskrat Falls. Anyway, that's another matter. Okay. Also. With regards to the hospital uh, or the ER, and I guess there is another example. I, I'm looking at it. The uh, the budget, uh, ten million. And in the space between the budget and now, it's gone up to 40.5. At some point, I think I'd have to look at clearly what is the reason here. Is, has there been something new added to it? Um, uh, but I guess I'm less and, and less inclined to um, to uh, just simply accept it's it's the increase in costs. I'd have to, I'd have to ask, uh, show me and you asked a point you set, made a point there a little while ago i don't know what else i can do but be frustrated well here's a case in point now they've awarded the contract but i would i would need to see right now show me uh, show me how uh, that the uh, that the increase is in uh, that uh, that uh, show me the proof the data that that, that justifies this increase uh, uh, four times you know three times uh, 30, another 30 30.5 million show That's cool part. Uh, well, whether it's government or market, but someone like uh, if if you if you have if you're getting work done on your house, okay, and and uh, here's what the contractor quotes, and he says, well, now right now, we've got to j- jack this up by. Uh, it's going to cost you another ten thousand. I, I can't help but think, Patty, you'd be saying, wait a minute, w- where did this come from? Show me why. Uh, like, show what what exactly has increased, and how much has labor increased? I don't think so. Um, I, but proved to me that, uh, that uh, justification. And otherwise, what we're getting is that we, we didn't get that uh, in the news announcement yesterday. There seemed to be, uh, other than the statement that, well, costs have gone up. Well, show me what costs exactly have gone up. But that,
1: that implies that there's a direct relationship with the Department of Finance, uh, guess, versus what industry knows. You know, like if it was my house and I get a quote and uh, when he comes back to start the project a month later he tells me it's tripled or what have you, that's when I get more quotes just to see whether or not I'm being taken to the woodshed by this particular contractor, which is very similar to an RFP process. There was four bids. They were all in excess of $40 And, you know, unless there's which is highly unlikely to be in a competitive industry, if there's some sort of collusion amongst the companies, which you have to believe there's not because that's bad for all of them, um, then, of course, the industry knows what things cost versus what the Department of Finance thinks they might cost. I guess that's, why, that's how I read RFPs. Because if all the bids were in excess of $40 million, Who am I asking to justify the difference between 10 and 40? That's that's the only question I would have. Is it incumbent on Marco to tell us why it's that much? Or is it incumbent on the Department of Finance to tell us as to why they're so far out? I don't know.
9: I can tell you I know that it's interesting with a number of housing projects here we getting repairs and on uh in Newfoundland and Labrador housing I know that in in some cases the work the RFPs were uh, like resubmitted, or the uh, bids weren't accepted because how it was it was put to me that they were uh they were beyond I'm trying to think of the word that the, the bids were I guess higher than what they knew the, to be the case okay so the work was delayed and I'm not suggesting here that the, uh, the that the uh, infrastructure be delayed, but I think there needs to be some uh, questioning here, otherwise, uh, and asking whether it's the, show, again. I'm going to come back. Show me the work or explain to me what uh, it, 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 it be, do the analysis here, or maybe uh, maybe we need to wait for a little bit longer. Uh, it's too late now, obviously, but uh, the fact is that I, I'm just having a hard time at it, uh, you know when I'm being told uh, and other issues that we don't have the money for it. We can't. Uh, where, where are we getting the money? And yet, it seems, when it co- whether it's Nalco or this, uh, the, uh, we, we can, we, we'll come up with the money. Uh, when there's so many other needs here as well. And
1: yeah. All I would say to the thought of waiting is, I don't think anything's going to get any cheaper.
9: No, and 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 and, poss- and possibly not. Uh, but uh, at the same time, at the same time, uh, I, I think we can we can still do due diligence. Look. I uh, I I again I go back to uh a reading of a number of other reports, uh and I, I can't help but think that there is a lack of due diligence there that uh, that that lands us in this problem. And uh as as far as I'm concerned, uh we need to be uh, we need to uh, we need to make sure that we're 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 spending money wisely and that the other priorities are addressed as well. Uh, and, and that's it. We just—I'm uh, we just, just suggesting—we need to pay closer attention and, and make sure that uh, you know that we are spending money wisely, and that government is in count as accountable to the public at all at all stages.
1: Yeah, let's start with no more foolhardy, ridiculous, unnecessary orders and council to allow one entity to yeah. take full reign of their uh, authority to give increases in pay that are so far and away out, out of whack with the comparative to inside government pay freeze in twenty sixteen. No, let's just yeah. go ahead and bump up our salaries. Amazing stuff. There you go Infuriating. And, and,
9: and, and you look at and you look at twenty sixteen. That budget was brought in exactly, and uh, and it it seems that uh, when it comes to the workers and everything else. Uh, that we're paying the price. And, and let's, let's keep in mind one other thing. i raised this as well. Like the issues we're facing in our healthcare system didn't just happen overnight. This nope. has been long-term and it's been building and it's been building by, uh, I would say, successive administrations, in, in ignoring the, ig- ignoring the war- warnings that were there. And it seems like um, it, it, you know, we can let that build to a crisis where now it's affecting you, your health, my health, the health of many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And yet we see these exorbitant salaries, which seem to be outside that that process. I guess, you know, that's the it, that's the flabber, uh, that's the flabbergast uh, for me. That's the frustration for you, That's the anger for so many. I would just like to think that at some point there is this oversight that we've learned. One key lesson is that we've got to uh, we got to be uh, fully cognizant of the uh, of that we're dealing with people's money uh, with the public's money and it's about the, as for the public good and making sure that we're benefiting the greatest number of people when it comes to this hospital uh, or the ER and and, and St. Clairs, I still have to I'm still going to come back to what are we doing to make sure that there are people who are going to be in this new emergency room uh and that they have the work life balance that they need and that uh that we have that we've got good qualified people who are going to want to stay here and make a life here and that's hopefully uh, 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 patty is, is going to make our healthcare system better and if we're addressing those underlying social determinants of health um then you know what Maybe we, we won't need as many people visiting the ER. Anyway, so those are the priorities I'm looking at, and, uh, and I, would, I hope that there's going to be an investment in those uh, social determinants of health as identified in the, in the health accord. That's going to be, that, I think, is going to benefit society in the long run as well. Appreciate the time, Jim.
1: Take care, sir. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din, the NDP member for St. John Center, leader of the NDPNL. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four, Brian, you're on the air.
10: Good morning, Patty. morning. Uh, before I get on to what I want to talk about, I just heard Jim Dinh, uh on your show. I said, Jim Dinh is on your show more than you are. and so is David Brazel, and i got a good idea.
1: Well, I've only talked Dave to David Brazel once in the last so few months.
10: worried, you know, they're going to have a heart attack one of these days. I think they should privatize the whole thing. Privatize the education system. Nice. Privatize the health care system. Privatize the road system. And then those girls have nothing nothing to worry about. They're always on the show, bitching and complaining about something. Well, we remember the last time the NDP said a government in Newfoundland. They did nothing, did they?
1: Well, they've never been to the government.
10: I, I knew that. And the Conservatives hadn't done any better. All they do all they do is spend time on television, turn people against the government. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is the, uh, the election in the States that's finally at an end. Um... I I gotta admit, Paddy, MSNBC did a horrible job presenting the uh, results. First of all, they couldn't figure out as the votes were coming in where they were coming from, how much they are, those and funny, the um, the uh, uh, the conservatives won the House and lost Senate, but NBC did a horrible job. Uh, I remember one night they said, "Oh, we're going to have results come in from this place in Arizona in ten minutes." I fell asleep and I woke up. The, I woke up and it was three o'clock in the morning. And I turned on and they said, "Oh, another twenty minutes. We'll get the uh, we'll get all the votes." Well, it's over now, and uh, I think the uh, conservatives won the House and lost the Senate, but. We heard now that Donald Trump is going to run again.
1: Just now before we get to... You're going
10: to call me crazy because I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a political atheist. I've become a Donald Trump fan. And I hope Donald Trump runs in the next election, and I hope he's elected. Uh, I don't believe the last election was stolen, uh, but I believe that... Um, I believe that Trump is, is going to do very, very well. Uh, and why am I saying that? I have because no idea. every conservative in the United States is coming out against him. And they'll go down to Mar-a-Lago within the next couple of weeks and kneel down and ask for forgiveness. And uh, I, I think he's going to win. Now, some uh, some representative of the government up in Ottawa said, if Trump were to run and win, it would be bad news for Canada. And it probably
1: will be. It was bad news last time. Um, So just before, and I don't really want to talk about Donald Trump, but when it comes to how the media covers elections, I find it to be ridiculous regardless. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, doing this bit about so-and-so is ahead, and, you know, we've heard from this county, or now we know the results in this seat. The fact of the matter is, when the polls closed, it's over. It's a matter of counting votes. There's no leads being exchanged or any of those things. I've really tried hard when covering elections not to talk like that because I think it sounds so silly because the actual fact of the matter is once the ba- once the ba- ballots have been cast... It's over. It's just a matter of math. We just count it, and we give the results at the end when the vote has been counted, certified. Then we can r- report what happened. As opposed to, oh, so and so is now ahead by 50 votes. Oh, now they're ahead yeah. by 150 votes. No, we're just counting votes. It's all just so, sort of silly, and it's all a bit of political theater. So I try to not talk like that when I cover elections because I do find it just great. Sam, you see all these graphs and everything's flowing around. No, people are actually counting things. You know, counting sometimes takes time.
10: Well, I also I also find uh, in American politics, not so much in Canadian. You people at the OCM and at the CBC and CTV, you, you do a good job at presenting uh, the elections and the, and the votes and stuff like that. But down down the states are so bent on either being conservatives or or democr or, or conservatives or Democrats or what have you. You know, like, like Joe Joe uh, Scarborough on his morning show, Morning Joe. Like if Trump doesn't get la- doesn't get defeated, the guys gonna go nuts. You know the television stations themselves. You know we I know that people complain about Murdoch and uh, and and his television station. So they but show- MSNBC and CNN are the same way, except they're 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 more liberal. You know. And that's why I think it's it's uh, it was ridiculous. So uh, my congratulations to whoever won that election down there. I think the Democrats won the hu- won the Senate and lost the House, and they won't get anything done. And
1: uh, well, that's the exact problem with two party system in the United States yeah. is if you don't hold all three, you both. Have- both components of the House and the White House, then it's a stalemate, and it's just loggerheads and buttonheads, and it's it's all kind of hard to watch. It's always election day in the United States. You know, the midterms. Oh, now yeah, we'll be not. working towards the presidential election, of course, in two years. Okay. It's nonstop, and I, I try to tune it out, even though I know it does have an impact where I live. Brian, I appreciate the time. I'm going to take one more before the news. Okay, goodbye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's go. Line number two, Chris O'Brien from the Knights of Columbus. Chris, you're on the air.
11: Yeah. Uh, Patty, this is Chris Chapter Grand Uh We have a couple of functions coming up. Uh, one will be on the 22nd of uh, November for a flipper dinner or roast beef.
9: Okay. Uh,
11: $25 uh, with all the fixings. Uh, we have another one coming up on December 31st. It's New Year's Eve. And uh, we have a roast beef dinner. uh we have uh, Tony Wiseman uh, and on the music. And the tickets for both functions are here at the bar. And on the 19th, we are getting ready for our uh, hampers for the uh, to give out on the, on the 19th. So we'll have about 100 a, a volunteers that will come in here on the 19th and pack them all up in the boxes and, and deliver them to the people that uh, put their name in.
1: Good on you. Always busy at the Knights of Columbus. Just uh, out of curiosity, are you seeing more and more people join? Because I know a lot of service clubs are kind of struggling to keep up the numbers that they enjoyed, say, yeah, years ago or decades ago. How's it looking at the KFC? Yeah,
11: the KFC is not bad. Okay. We're coming up now since uh, uh, July, which is our, it's the start of our calendar year. We're after getting about uh, 20, 25 new members.
1: That's good. You
11: know. Yeah, not bad, no, not bad.
1: So, give us a very quick rundown one more time. When for the various events?
11: Okay, it's the uh, 22nd of November yep. for the Flipper Dinner. The 19th for the hampers. And the uh, 31st of December for the New Year's Eve gala.
1: Okay, how much is the Flipper Dinner?
11: Flipper Dinner is $25. Okay,
1: is it all takeout or any eat-in?
11: Uh, eat-in or takeout. Okay. And the New Year's Eve is uh, $50 single. $100 double.
1: Got it. What's the number if someone wants to call and order up a flipper or roast beef dinner?
11: Yeah, uh, 726-1452. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much for, te- uh, for telling us about it this morning, Chris. All right. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're talking about the SEAL Summit and then a fellow called from Labrador yesterday about the state of his inability to get back his quota after he suffered a stroke. I think that's what Marvel wants to talk about. Don't go away.
0: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three, Merv,
12: you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Well, thank you for putting me on. I must say, I love that uh, last piece uh, on, in your news, VOCM news regarding search and rescue. A lot to talk about there, but uh, today. I had a couple of things I wanted to, to bring up, uh, Patty. I don't know if I get to squeeze it all in or not, but one was with regard to the caller. I think his name was John, um, a fisherman that uh, became ill and uh, lost his license, lost his income, and so on. You might recall that. Uh, yeah, he had a stroke caller. Yeah. yeah, and the other part was uh, a little piece on the summit. Um, yeah, so I, hey, look, I was really drawn to that uh, that conversation, and for the life of me, I can't fully understand. I I have a sense that... You couldn't either, quite frankly, and that. Uh, but I also uh, could feel, you know, the empathy and compassion that you had for this person, like I did. And I'd love to be able to intervene on his behalf somehow, but I, j- I just don't know how to go about it. And I'm, I'm just wondering as well, you know, what what brought all this on? You know, is he is he part of a core uh, or the, the, what they call the non-core status? Enterprise owners, fishermen, um, fish harvesters in this province, or it is sounded it like indigenous? it. Yeah, because if it is, I mean, you know, uh, CNL, myself, Ryan in particular, have done an awful lot of work on that lately. Uh, as you know, we've managed to get a petition in the House of Commons on that, and uh, certainly looking at everything, maybe right down to litigation at some point uh, to try to help some of these people, um, you know, who's been really discriminated against, uh, recover, you know, what is justly due them. I mean, there are 400. I think 454 of these non-core uh, fish harvesters out there—that's been fishing uh, under certain conditions—but uh, they're not allowed to sell or transfer, uh, you know, their 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 license, their their quota holdings, uh, when they pass on or if they become sick, and they could be left and dry. And I just don't know if that was. If John was one of these people, but um, I'd certainly like to find out a little more. And wondering if you did dig into it a little bit, as you indicated, you might. I did.
1: I had a look around to see if I could figure it out. Uh, I've got a couple of messages into people who should be in the know on this front. I couldn't really understand it, so I'm still trying to figure it out. To be honest with you, Merv, I don't know, like. If someone's health status, for instance, if I had a heart attack and took some time away from my enterprise, does that mean that all of a sudden I fall through the cracks, I can't recover my IQ? But, of course, he went on to say that he didn't get an individual quota, so I'm still trying to figure out how that works, too, to be honest with you.
4: Yeah,
12: and it is uh, it is a little bit... Um Incoherent at the most, if I could put it that way. But, but look, if there's anything I can do, I mean, my number is there with the producer, and if he wants to call in and get in touch with us, I know that we've been encouraging, that's CNL, that has been encouraging all the non-core uh, fish harvesters to call in to get in touch with CNL and, uh, you know, try to see if we can't do something about this issue on a collective basis. You
1: know? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I do what I can. Uh, believe it or not, the show doesn't stop at 12 o'clock for me. <laughs> I've got <laughs> I a I laundry totally list of that. stuff. And when things are really super confusing, like that particular circumstance was, it takes me a bit of time to not only, one, figure it out, but then, two, try to see if I can do anything to help the poor fellow out. So I'm still at it. This
12: is the yeah, short answer. For sure. Yeah, for very, very um, disturbing kind of a story. Uh, look, uh, very quickly, on the SEAL Summit, and I've heard a lot of uh, callers, a lot of conversation, and I think a lot of it, the things that need to be said about that, Summit, SEAL Summit was said, uh, by and large, I think there's a reasonably positive uh, approach that's been taken by most people. Uh, I was, I attended the summit, and, and again, I, I want to be positive, but everything being said, Patty, you certainly can't blame anybody at that conference uh, who came away and before they even went there would be skeptical about the process, you know? I mean, you got to. People got to understand that, that there's just got to be a level of skepticism given the history and so on. Because I, I have heard a lot of what was said before. We've had summits um, in the past, or at least symposiums and so on. And look, we've had ministers. Uh, you know, we're all really uh, big on the idea that uh, minister. Uh, Joyce Murray had, had said and recognized that seals eat fish. Well, we' had ministers before that knew that, you know, right going right back to John Crosby days, Lyle Hearn they all they were ministers of fish. they they knew seals eat fish, but we could never seem to achieve uh, the kinds of things that we need to achieve, especially the science part of it. but uh, look the point that i I want to to make, and I'm not sure if there was a lot of discussion around this, I know I asked a question at the summit. I, we spent uh, an entire day dealing with the uh, the science, and I think we all came away with the, the understanding that there needs to be a fundamental change in the in the science and the approach that we're taking to connect all the dots there. So no disagreement on that. The other piece, uh, which I felt we would get to the bottom of a little bit on the second day, was the issue of um, trade, especially international trade and opening up the markets because, let's face it, You can have all the domestic markets you want here in Newfoundland and Labrador and even Canada for that matter. But if the markets are not opened in the large marketplace like China, uh, the EU, the United States and other places, then it's not going to go anywhere. It's just just as simple as that. And we have quite an array of products. And that's one of the things I'm really impressed with that under all the conditions that we've had, we have managed to come up with some fairly, fairly innovative products. approaches to, to different product lines that's out there. But my question was and still is, and I'm not sure it fully got answered, that uh given the fact that you know that we have had multilateral agreements like the WTO, which is difficult to manage, about 160 countries involved at the WTO. But we've also had bilateral uh, and trilateral agreements that have opened and been talked about and closed in the last five or six years. One is the CETA agreement. You know, that's that's bilateral. And and also the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, trilateral. Uh, but there was never any moves made to entrench steel products uh, in that agreement to to accrue some benefits and get into to the marketplace. So my question was, do we also need like science? Do we also need a fundamental change? In attitude and approach when it comes to negotiating our way into uh, the international trade agreements, if not, then I think we're dead in the water.
1: We might be. I've got a funny feeling that you know, for some, like for instance, with the EU, it's just simply a non-starter. Same thing with the United States, our largest trading partner. You can't even have a sealskin wallet and not be not have it confiscated if you want to go to the United States. So it's just. It seems to be a non-starter. So places where we can sell, I would imagine the first focus would be expanding the market there, whether that be in China or whoever knows where, because we can indeed sell product. Carino still in business, and Vogue Furriers are still in business, and I know they have customers outside of the province as well. So, And I spoke with Dion Dakins from uh, Carino yesterday or the day before. And he's of the same mind that the key focus here is it's fine to do the science because that will come up with political will to do X, Y, or Z. But the only the only focus that's going to make a pragmatic difference is finding a market. Because mm-hmm. I will be shocked, and I'll admit freely if I'm wrong on this one, if it comes to pass, I can't foresee a call for the sake of calling. I just can never foresee never. that happening. So never. if it's not about expanding the market, then I don't know what it's about
12: personally. I, 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 I agree. Never, never, never... Well, you see a call. It's not going to happen. Um, so let's forget that, you know, no question. And a lot of talk at the summit was about how, to, how do we create value uh, and how do we make good on that value? You make good on value in the marketplace. And, uh, yeah, we can't open up these big markets. And, look, uh, you know, going back to the days of Loyola Hearn, there were initiatives. Uh, and I think we had named an ambassador. Uh, of officials like Ola Sullivan, spent a lot of time in the Far East and full to open up these markets. But, you know, when you get to the bureaucratic level in external affairs, um, in places like the High Commission in Britain, uh, places uh, all over the world, in the other places in the EU, and even in China, you know, these senior bureaucrats are simply not taking the cue and the orders from the ministers to do something. So if you have a bureaucracy to, to knock back, to change attitudes and approach you've got you've got quite a challenge to to deal with you talk about science and how we connect those dots but if those dots don't get connected somehow and for the life of me i don't know how we're going to go about doing it but there has to be a way i mean these people are working you know for the ministers and so on and should do it but but there's a problem there and i just wanted to to raise the profile on that and see, you know, how we're going to get past that challenge. Uh, I just feel I'd be remiss if I didn't at least uh, raise that issue with you. Uh, Eddie? Fair
1: enough. Uh, some people think the conversation's dead, but, you know, like most matters, I don't see the mayor in simply throwing our arms in the air and saying, well, that's it, it's over, because it might not be over. <laughs> so where we go from here, I'm not sure. But if some people that were in the room were encouraged, like Dion at Carino, Fair enough. I mean, who am I to say that he's wrong to feel the way he does? You know, he's in the industry. He's trying to grow his business. So I'll I'll leave it at that for now. But I'll I'll believe it when I see it. If there's any forward momentum, I'd rather be reducing the numbers of seals off there or the expansion of the market that's required for both to work
12: hand in glove. Uh, appreciate yeah. the time, Murph. Yeah, thanks, Patty. And I will say all in on this note that hey, look, I'm up to my neck in fur. You know, I have the one of the largest silver fox farms in the world here uh, today in North Harbour. And uh, you know, I, I can tell you that the offer, not just seal, uh, you know, is in a bad in a bad spot. You know, there's we've been producing below cost of production uh, for the last seven or eight years. Mink and and pox last year, my cost of production, uh, I recovered in the marketplace about 50% of my cost of production. Is that sustainable? I don't think so. Is is that a statement about where fur is? And when we say fur, you know, we're all in it together, and that means seal fur too. So uh, there's a lot of battles to fight, and uh, it's going to take us a long time to get there. Thank you, Patty. Great bit of time.
1: All the best. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. Uh, Break time. When we come back, Bill is there to talk Nalcor. Okay, don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line five. Bill, you're on the air.
13: Uh, good morning, Patty. I'd like to talk about the Nalcor salary.
1: Sure.
13: Um, i will just like to throw it out there that maybe us as citizens uh, should try and put through a class action lawsuit towards, um, towards the, the uh, Nalcor uh, regime. Um, I'm sure there's law firms out there that would probably take it on, considering that they took it on for uh, – or the Mount Cashel uh, rights and whatnot. I mean, this this has gone way too far, and I think a class action lawsuit by the citizens of Newfoundland needs to be done.
1: I think Mount Cashel is obviously quite a, a different uh, circumstance. But who would be the claimants? So, who would the suit be filed against, in your opinion?
13: Uh, well, actually, both. It would be uh, if 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 if, there was no, if somebody was going to take it on. I think that uh, our government Treasury Department needs to be uh, included, as well as Nalcor itself to see how those monies got allocated from a budgetary point of view. And uh, also to, uh, to make Nalcor uh, executives personally responsible for uh, allocating those bonuses and, uh, and uh, higher rates of pay for their internal employees.
1: Look, I think everyone is going to be pretty infuriated by reading this story, unless you're one of the people that were working for those big salaries. But of course, when the government allowed them to do it, that's where I think the problem begins. Is, you know, why did anybody ever think it was a good idea to allow a stand or, a, pardon me, a quasi independent Crown corporation like Nalcor to be able to make these decisions on their own accord? If we were talking about pay freeze for public servants uh, in 2016, why didn't that be extended to all the agencies, boards, and Crown corporations? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me how we even arrived here.
13: I totally agree with you. And that's why I'm saying it's a class action lawsuit. Um, was started and and a petition somehow sent out to every citizen in Newfoundland to put their name on a piece of paper to say we want this dealt with I think uh, that would be one of the first steps to actually make a difference and make accountability I mean Siobhan Cody there a couple of months back was saying we can barely meet uh, payroll and this and that we're bankrupt now all of a sudden there's a lousy $500 going to be given to people? I think they should pay everybody $5,000 based on this fiasco.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we even have the money necessarily for this $500 play, to be honest with you. I know the government's reporting a minor surplus given the uptick in oil royalties and taxes, both individual and corporate. But, you know, this is as much politics as it is helping.
13: Well, you know, Jim Bin... Made very good points earlier this morning, and I fully support everything that he said. Not that I'm an NDP person, um, but you know, uh, there was no money for the common Joe who's homeless pretty well or, or trying to pay oil bills and this and that. But for some reason, now Core is that shining star. Uh, uh, anyway, it does, as, as Dwight Ball would say, it doesn't pass my smell test.
1: It certainly has me. F- Infuriated again here this morning yeah. about it, but yeah, anyway, your suggestion maybe others will agree with it, and they're welcome to call to offer their thoughts.
13: Well, I think uh, we should flood our elected uh, members uh, regarding this and force our elected members to bring this to light, keep it the light, don't put it on the back burner, and get something done. This is not going to go away. Secondly, I'd like to talk. Just very quickly about the wind farming over on the west coast for now. Okay. Now, another suggestion: I think we should demand that those companies, when they get set up and whatnot, uh, put ten percent of whatever profits they make yearly for perpetuity into our grid. In other words, instead of giving us a one-time lump sum payment of money, I think for perpetuity, ten percent of whatever they generate should be put into our power grid so the actual foot soldier Newfoundlander can benefit from it.
1: I suppose some of that could come in the form of if we can figure out a way to structure some sort of royalty regime, that would give you the annual return. And how that looks, I'm not really sure. It's going to be pretty impossible to put it on the wind. I suppose we can attach something to the water. Uh, But, you know, that still goes back to my summary question is we need to know more about exactly what's in it for us. Because we know yeah. what's in it for them, not so much about us. So there's going to be construction jobs and very few operational jobs thereafter. So, what's the big, uh, what's the question, the, pardon me, the answer to that ultimate question? What do we get? You know, because yeah. if we can't create a royalty or some sort of expensive lease for Crown land, then it'll be short term jobs and then who knows what. And we're not even really sure what the implication is with our own grid with these uh, setups, this project, World Energy, GH2, or any of the rest of them. Because there's some 31 proposals, apparently, on the minister's desk, and we'll see how that works out. Uh, Bill, appreciate the time. After the news we go.
13: Okay, and the other one quick uh, finish off, the green report. It needs to be updated again as to what that green report was supposed to unveil and what moving forward is supposed to come out of it.
1: Yeah, well, it'd be nice to know exactly what they're working on, whether it be accepting or rejecting any of the recommendations they're in. And whatever they've accepted, what are they doing about it? Because we do know, and it's very likely, there's going to be some consideration given to selling some government assets, which was a key one in there. Whether that be uh, equity that we own in the oil business and or the NLC or motor vehicle or Bull Arm or Marble Mountain or whatever. So that's the big one, I think, for most folks. Uh, late for the news, Bill. Appreciate the time.
13: Okay, my
0: friend. Thank you.
1: You, you too. Bye-bye. Uh, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Joni's there to talk about the cost of living checks, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one.
1: Joni, you're on the air. Hi, Teddy. How are you doing? Great today. How are you doing?
13: Not so bad. I was wondering about them checks, the five hundred dollar checks that are supposed to be out in the May. Are supposed to be out in the middle of the month.
1: Yeah, they started. Never,
13: they're started already.
1: Yeah, apparently so.
13: Oh, okay then.
1: Yeah, okay. it's going to take. It's going to take a while. Not everyone's going to see that check right away. The department says okay. that it's going to take maybe as long as six weeks from the middle of the month for all the checks to be mailed out. For those with the lowest oh. income, those are getting them first. Oh,
13: that's what it
1: is. Yeah.
13: Oh. Okay, thanks, Teddy. Have a good day. You
1: too. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. All right, yeah, bye. Yeah, so that's the basics of it. So there was a lot of concern, too, about what happens if I've moved because it was based on your last address recorded with CRA this past summer, and some people have absolutely moved since then. It also is a problem for people who maybe haven't filed their taxes, and some of those people might be the ones in the worst shape. So it's a bit of a convoluted process to get those checks to people, And, like, I'm not making a huge big deal of this particular point, but it's also curious that how many of the people in the 392,000 are supposed to get these checks, how many of them have registered and have had a direct deposit set up with CRA, for instance? You know, there is a cost to doing this in the post. There obviously is. So and it's not just for postage costs, too. It's also for how many people and what's the process inside government to stuff all these checks in all these envelopes before they get distributed. So that's the play, as we understand it, from the department, is those with the lowest incomes, and you don't have to apply for this. It's just going to come to you. Those with the lowest will get the checks first. And it may take as long as six weeks for all the checks to be dispersed and to end up in your mailbox. So it's going to take a little bit of time, but that's the understanding that we have. Actually, I should get that number for those of you who have maybe have moved and need to refile your new address with the government. All right, got got here hear the feedback here somewhere. Uh, so be cyber attack. Mm. Okay, if you have indeed moved, what you need to do is to contact the Tax Administration Division at this number, one 877 Seven two nine six three seven six, or you can uh, voice your concerns or offer your address change by email at taxadmin@gov.onl.ca. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number five. Leah, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hiya.
14: Um, I just wanted to call today uh, to update. Well, for a couple things. First of all, to update everyone on how the uh, food drive went back a few weeks ago. Um, I called in telling you about a food drive that I was planning to do, dress up like Julia from Sesame Street and knock door-to-door trick-or-treating for the food bank. Yep. Well, I did that a couple of weeks ago, and it went amazingly well. I had so many people uh, answer their doors and open up their cupboards and their hearts to help me help uh, those in need. When I delivered it all to the food bank, I had collected enough to feed Uh, six or seven families. So I was really, really pleased with that. And uh, thank you so much to everybody who had uh, helped me out. Terrific. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: That's a good effort. Why do you do it? Because, you know, we do this food drives with non-perishables and that kind of stuff. But for the Halloween approach that you take, what was the impetus for you to just start this?
14: So uh, the Halloween food drive idea, actually I was inspired by one of the... uh, The children at my church. I had helped out with a a similar food drive. Uh, Our youth had gone door-to-door collecting non-perishable for the food bank over the summer a couple of years ago. And um, as we were walking along, one of them said, hey, Pastor Kendlin, this is, it's kind of like Halloween. We're going door-to-door and we're getting food, but we're not in our costumes. And I thought that would be a really cool idea. (laughs) So that year I went dressed up as Rudolph and It was a big success and a lot of fun. I did it again this year.
1: I think it's great. Whenever anyone takes it upon themselves to try to do something to make someone's Halloween or Christmas or Easter or whatever a little bit brighter, a little bit more cheery, I think it's awesome. So good on you. Thank
14: you. And I have another project uh, coming up in December. So every year, my mom and my sister and my niece and me will fill up stockings with um, hats, scarves, toiletries. Uh, snacks, any kind of thing that would be um, helpful to somebody in need. And we will distribute these stockings downtown on Christmas Eve to uh, to those who are on the streets.
1: More good work, Leah. Good on you. So <laughs> a lot of good people out there doing good things, and you're one of them.
14: Yes, and um, if anyone would like to uh, help me out with this project, um, if you have any... Uh, gently used or brand new hats or scarves or mittens or anything of the sort, or if you would like to donate perhaps a gift card for tins or some books or toiletries, feminine items, anything that would be helpful to somebody less fortunate, or even a little bit of money to help me buy some things that the people might need, you can get in touch with me. By phone 631 0505 or by email Leah, L E A H M C 41 at yahoo.ca and say, Hey, I have a donation or I want to help you out. And we can arrange to uh, come pick that up.
1: Sounds good, Leah 631 0505 or Leah M C 41 at yahoo.ca. Thanks for this, Leah.
14: You're welcome. Take care. You
1: too. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye bye. What a pleasant spirit that lady is. Okay, let's go to line number two. Elaine, you're on the air.
6: Oh, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, hi, this is Elaine calling. Um, I'm calling from down around Pleasant View Pleasantville Avenue, down around that way. Yeah. Um, I was on my way to work and I noticed three Huskies ran across the street in front of me. One is the big black and white and gray one. The other one is a fully white one, and it looks like a baby Husky. So I followed them around on some of the streets, but then I lost them when I got off of Charter Avenue, and they went in the woods. But I did get up close enough to know that the three of them have um, name tags on their neck only I couldn't get up close enough to either one of them to see what it was. So I'm calling in because they look like they're really well-cared-for dogs. They might have gotten out of the back garden or whatever. So they're down around Pleasant View Avenue, down around Charter, down that way, roaming around.
1: So what time did you see the dogs?
6: Uh, That was about 10 minutes ago.
1: Okay, so obviously someone loves and cares for those dogs, and they simply got out of the house or out of the yard or whatever happened. So yeah, if you're that person, beautiful. your family, who has three huskies that are no longer in the yard or in the in the front room, they're running around down by kitty-bitty. So maybe that's the place to start looking. Thanks for this, Elaine. Oh,
6: you're welcome. Have a good day. You
1: too. Take care.
6: Okay, okay. bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Yeah, so three huskies are on the loose. Uh, Nick called earlier about how... For instance, Electric NL and or the manufacturers are testing their electric trucks in this case with towing capacity and what the battery life is when you have an empty bed versus a trailer behind. And he said he couldn't get the information because he called Ford. Uh, what I did was just have a very quick Google and whether it be car and driver or motor trend, there are all kinds of links out there where they have done these tests, whether it be the size, the shape, the style, the weight of various trailers behind an electric truck. In this case it was the Ford Lightning and the proof was really quite clear. I mean you get less fuel mileage when you're towing in your internal combustion engine fueled pickup. Same thing with the battery powered. In fact the towing results were woeful, terrible. Now the only thing that I think most people consider when they look at that world and the potential to buy an electric vehicle is that undoubtedly over time, just like what we saw with the regular engine that we 're all m- mostly familiar with, is hopefully the technology improves I- I'm waiting <laughs> you know I think a lot of people out there are considering it, and whether it be about emissions and or cost of operation that's what seems really attractive to me is when I do a cost comparison from what like a friend of mine who has an electric vehicle who loves it, what it costs him per year to operate his rig versus what it costs me per year. That looks like a really attractive place for me to start. Some people will be driven based on emissions. Some people will be driven based on cost. And now, between the technology improving and the price point to get into it, I think they're going to come back to earth a little bit when they become more and more mainstream. And it's not happening overnight. And not everyone's going to have an electric vehicle tomorrow. Of course not. So that's some of the quick uh, Google results I got with the... Towing testing that those two entities in particular, Motor training, and Car and Driver, and I didn't even look that much further down the list because it came up with like a hundred thousand results. So there you go. Uh, let's take our final break in the morning. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, off the top of the show today, spoke to a story that I had read just prior to going live here this morning about the the fact that a family found out decades later that the child that they had in 1969, the babies were actually switched at birth. So the woman had a funny feeling all these years that something was wrong and that that child didn't fit in with her siblings. Turns out, through the jigs and the reels, DNA testing proved that absolutely that happened at the Springdale Cottage Hospital in 1969. As I mentioned, I thought that this was as much urban myth as it was the reality. You know, I'm sure it has happened. Of course it has. Since then... Three different people have sent me notes about the fact that someone belonged to them, had the exact same thing happen to their family. Babies switched at birth and eventually found out via DNA testing. There was another fellow told me that, uh, I think it was his mother maybe, was in the hospital, had the baby. The next morning, the nurse brought the baby in and said, here you go, and you know, it's the time to to try to breastfeed and that kind of stuff. And the lady says, that's not my baby. And there's a sure it is, and showed them the little tag. But, of course, the lady said, no, I had a girl yesterday. That's a boy. <laughs> so imagine the confusion that was probably a little bit more prevalent years ago. Hopefully there's enough protections in place now where it doesn't happen at all. And maybe it still does. But I was shocked to hear from three different families. that They say they know someone that it happened to. Anyway, that story is really quite something. Uh, we're told that this afternoon there will be an infrastructure announcement. On what? Don't really know. But it looks like it's going to be a cost-shared arrangement because there's going to be a Member of Parliament, uh, well, two, Joanne Thompson and Seamus O'Regan, and the Mayor of the City of St. John's, Danny Breen, and Premier Fury. So what it is, I don't know. But on these infrastructure announcements, what's become an absolute commonplace is not only cost-sharing, but it's also the issue regarding public-private partnerships, and we really do need to talk more about that. Profit is not a, not a bad word, but how do we approach you know, short-term gain versus potential long-term pain when we enter into these P3s? And that should be more of a topic, my personal opinion. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Charlie Murphy. You're on the air. Hi there. How's it going? Doing okay, Charlie. How about you? Pretty good. And let me finish the introduction. Charlie Murphy is the executive director at Quadrangle Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's talk about oh, yeah. counseling services that you offer, Charlie. Tell the folks what you do.
15: Yeah, totally. So we actually just launched a new counseling service uh, in partnership with Jacob Hutterster Memorial Foundation. Uh, so on Fridays from 11 until 3.30, you can basically book uh, a drop-in kind of space online, um, and that link is just on our website. So if you go to thequadnl.com, uh, and go to programs and click on counseling, you'll see all the information there. Uh, but that was actually provided through a grant that we uh, applied for through um, Bell let Talk, and we received that uh, just recently, and we basically put that together and launched it um, just the other week. So now is the first Friday uh, that uh, people can actually start uh, booking time.
1: And so if you have a partnership with the Jacob Putterson Memorial Foundation, which is a great organization, does that it mean is. that the counseling uh, service that you're offering are also from youth uh, 18 to 35, I think it is? What they?
15: Yep. So basically, it's open to um, anyone who actually is looking for uh, support, because our organization with the Quad is, uh, we don't have an age range. Uh, it's like anyone can kind of uh, reach out. Uh, but with Jacob Putterson Foundation, yeah, like because of that um, piece, uh, they're more... Uh, informed uh, of those age groups I'm I'm assuming in that way so that they'll be able to help people better in that kind of regard Um, but yeah basically um, it's for 2SLGBTQI plus individuals across the province and it can be through video, phone call, text message um, and then of course if you're in the metro area and you prefer to go in person there's also that as an option and of course the building um, is not uh, I believe it has a few steps so it's not the most accessible to get in um, at the front Uh, but again it's we have all those different options to make sure that it's more accessible for anyone to use.
1: The need for counseling services has exploded, especially in the last two and a half years. Even uh, Health Canada is changing their stats. We were talking about one in five are in need of some form of counseling or mental health supports. And now mm-hmm. they're using one in four. It's really quite something. So Jacob Potter, they were so overwhelmed they had to stop their waiting list. Or put it on hold yeah. for a little while. So, you know, whenever it's a group like yours or anybody else that picks up the slack and offers more opportunities for folks to get some counseling, most welcomed and urgently required. So, that's great yeah. news, Charlie. Give the folks the details one more time the where, the when, the how.
15: Yeah, sure. So, it's a partnership between uh, Quadrangle NL and Jacob Puddister Memorial Foundation. You can go onto our website or the Jacob Puddister Foundation's website. Um, And you can just find it on on our website, basically, for us in quadranglenl.com. It's just under programming, and then it's called the Quadrangle Community uh, Counseling Line. You just click on that, and basically it'll take you to the online booking. Terrific. Thanks for this, Charlie. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Charlie Murphy, the
1: Executive Director at Quadrangle NL. And isn't it just amazing? You know, all of these organizations like Charlie's and the Jacob Patterson Memorial Foundation and other not-for-profits and charities out there, Imagine if we didn't have them doing the work they're doing, especially when we talk about uh, mental health services, counseling, and what have you, because the government just can't keep up with it. Like most things in the volunteer, not-for-profit and charitable world, if you back out those people, those individuals, and those organizations' efforts, we would be absolutely lost. Last check-in on the Twitter. Someone points out the potential for a, or the possibility, or for a class action lawsuit regarding some of the Information that we've learned from the Auditor General's report. Of course, we own Alcor. We might exactly just be suing ourselves, unless it was specific members of the board and or executives, but I don't know how that works, but that was an interesting chat. Our email address is com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.